Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. Do you remember F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gadsby? The character J. Gadsby had a romantic relationship with Daisy. He went to war, and in his absence, Daisy fell in love and married Tom Buchanan. Jay returned from war and wanted to hook up with Daisy again, and we have a little lover's triangle. But now, Jay pressures Daisy that she must tell Tom, her husband, that she never loved him to establish the purity of their first encounter. With no purity, there can be no relationship. And that's the problem with Western Marxism. The once triumphant socialist experiment in the 20th and 21st century is under constant criticism for not being able to replicate the spirit of the original movement. All advances that have followed from the Soviet Union, Cuban Revolution, and China are unable to capture the passion of the original relationship. With no purity, there can be no relationship. I hope this is not too obtuse. Our guest today can explain, so let's discuss. Hey, warm greetings. We are back with, uh, if you're on the show twice, uh, Carlos, you are officially the friend of a show, so you are... This is our second time. We're really looking forward to this. Uh, Carlos Garrido, and you are a professor at um, SIU, Carbondale, my own stopping grounds, or south of my <laughs> stopping grounds, and fin- and doing work in philosophy. I guess you and Greg both could be officially uh, uh, categorized as philosophers. <laughs> and uh, how's, the, how's the coursework going? Are you doing classes and progressing well? Yeah, well, first, thank you. Thank you guys for having me on again. I I absolutely love your show. The interviews that you guys do are just wonderful. Um, and this is the, the first interview I'll, I'll be doing on my book, so I'm excited about that. Uh, and yeah, I've been teaching online for the last year because I uh, my, my wife and I had a baby. Uh, but other from that, uh, I'll, I'll be starting in-person teaching again. And I generally cover the the history of philosophy, so I've been doing intro for maybe three years now, and then before that, I was teaching ethics. But yeah, well, fun stuff. I, I as you know, Carbondale is one of the poorest, if not the poorest, uh, city in Illinois. So it's really good to engage uh, through teaching with you know diverse parts of the the poor and working class community in well, Southern Illinois. I, it's a a very good school. <laughs> It is, and uh, I had my good friend's uh, brother went lived there, and we used to always do pilgrimages to Carbondale. I've got great, great uh, experiences there. We're 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 talking. I, about- I grew up just just for the record. I grew up uh, in the uh, Dandel area. You know, that's uh, north and uh, east of Carbondale, and in fact, it's the uh, one of the three poorest areas in the country. The Danville area was an industrial area for a long time when I was a kid growing up, the General Motors plant, coal mines, and and so on, and that's all gone. And so that, and near where I live today in Pittsburgh, uh, Weirton area, uh, Weirton Steubenville area is also one of the three poorest former industrial areas in the country. So uh, we appreciate what you're doing for Illinois. And you'd be surprised these, these kids have a longing to know um and you know when you start engaging with the materials and their wheels start turning in ways in which you know high school middle school education wasn't able to do for them 
it's very impressive. It, it resonates a lot with um, this character in one of uh, Du Bois's works, The Souls of Black Folk, Josie. She's this uh, a black girl that just, he described her as having this longing to know, even though she's living uh, in immense poverty and has all of these limitations related to racism and, and, and the poverty that they're living in. She has this thirst for knowledge. Um, and it's very beautiful, but it's stifled, of course, by, you know, the economic conditions people right. are in. But, yeah. We're, we're, we are gathered here today to talk about your book, uh, The Purity Fetish and the Crisis of Western Marxism. And, um, you know, this, this isn't a long book, uh, but um, I, I, I enjoyed it. I, I, I realized that there was a lot of things that I, a lot of times in reading it, I had to um, have Google open and kind of, I didn't know the philosophers. I know, Greg, you know the philosophers, uh, but it's, uh, it's both a book on philosophy and a book on organizing. And oh my my gosh, your your uh, blurbs on this. Uh, this book is a healthy anecdote to the widespread infantile leftism that infects the American left. Uh, the book is a clarion call for the collective project of building socialism. Uh, it just goes on and on. You you, uh, you you got some great great reviews on this book, Carlos, and you should be very proud of it. So uh, tell tell me uh, uh, tell me about a fetish. I'm an old psychologist. I know what fetishism is, but there is this purity fetish that you think is um, a, a roadblock to some of the socialist progression. Tell, um, fill me in. Give me a give me an overview. Right. So part of what I'm doing in the book is tying certain sets of mistakes that have been. Um, that have been noted uh, by specifically the Marxist-Leninist left and the general left in the West for a very long time, uh, but they haven't been in the past systematized in a way that uh, is able to depict comprehensively how it is that they're all grounded in a certain ideological framework and that that ideological framework, you can trace it back to ancient Greek philosophy, uh, specifically the Eleatic school and, and the figure I focus on the most is Parmenides and, and Zeno. And what I'm what I mean by the purity fetish is this incessant obsession with supporting something, working with something, um, and, 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 and passing judgment on the basis of whether something can measure up to the pure ideas of that thing that exists in the person's heads. So it, fetish here is not um, too strictly defined in, in, in the way that like Marx uses commodity fetishism. I'm using fetish more specifically as a way of speaking about this incessant obsession with measuring up to purity. And if something doesn't measure up to purity, it is rejected. And, and in my introduction, I had, I, I stole from one of your articles, your, your, um, using the great Gadsby, uh, as a, a a problem with this, and if you know, if for those who don't remember, it's it's um, people fall in love, fellow goes to war, girlfriend remarries, and part of the love triangle, part of the inability to kind of get on with their life, is this uh, requirement that she say that she never really loved her husband, so they could get back to the purity of their original relationship, that first love. And it's um, 
and and I think that's a perfect analogy for the socialist movement. We have this remarkable revolution that occurred with all this hope and and we've had social experiment after social experiment after social experiment and it's just it's just constantly um a frustration that people are are saying you're not but you're not you're not the original marxist game plan i, I don't, i'm not i'm not saying that well you say it you say it in your words yeah well i i think it it comes down to how it is that people understand what marxism is and usually they understand it as a series of conclusions simply um and these conclusions are therefore treated very statically and they end up being the sort of shopping list checklist that people measure reality um, against. And if reality doesn't measure up to that checklist, they reject reality in favor of the, the purity of the checklist. But the essence of Marxism, at least in the tradition that I, I come from, Marxism-Leninism, is the method. It's the worldview. Um, it's, it's, it's a living body of knowledge and, and, and organizing and struggle that continuously develops throughout history that, yes, has certain sets of conclusions and principles towards which it is striving but it never measures reality in accordance with the ideal in order to reject reality and i think the perfect case of this is when you look at marx's studies of the paris commune he he wasn't necessarily seeing okay does this fit the things i've talked about the worker state in the past on the contrary if you look at the writings from Marx, Engels, and Lenin on, on the commune, what you find is that they were trying to discover how reality, by abolishing the existing state of affairs, was able to discover new forms of social organization. And what they could, the, their main concern was, how can we learn from this? How can we learn from the real movement of history, which abolishes the present state of things, which is how Marx and Engels describe what communism is in the, in the German ideology, a very early work in terms of their life. But very essential because they, they say very specifically communism for us is not a static state of affair um, towards which reality must adjust itself, but it is the real movement of history. And so uh, that's something that the Western left uh, fails to do. And the paradox is that often they fail to do it by having the standards, uh, the pure standards, the pure ideal towards which they want socialist reality to measure up to be the statements that, for instance, Marx and Engels or Lenin make on the Paris Commune. And the paradox is that by associating themselves purely with these conclusions in a very mechanistic form, which of course resembles, you know, the education that we have in the West, it's very conclusion driven. Um, but by associating themselves purely with the conclusions and not with the method through which those conclusions were derived, they lose the living spirit of Marxism in the name of proclaiming themselves as Marxists. And so I think that uh, in, in a way, uh, it's, it's fair to some extent to, to even reject the, the re reject them the title of, of Marxist, because what, what Marxism is, is a worldview. And by focusing on the conclusions, ignoring the worldview, ignoring the real movement of history, ignoring reality itself, they, it's hard to categorize them as, as, as Marxist. Um, and what I do in this text is is develop the various forms that it appears in the Western left and then most more specifically in, in the U.S. left. And this has been a project which has been concretizing itself thanks to 
the work that uh, that I've been doing with the Midwestern Marx Institute and other folks within the institutes uh, um, within the institute who have uh, with discussions with me and 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 the constant analysis of the development of U.S. society and, and of geopolitics helped me concretize this concept uh, and in so doing helped us analyze the real world and so we when I started the the theoretical development of the purity fetish I was limiting it to an analysis of how it was that socialists in the west understood socialist experiments abroad and used the small failures that existed in those experiments in a way that magnified those failures and then synecdocally took that magnified failure and said that well that's the whole experiment experiment and because that fails to meet up to my ideal standards i'm going to reject it but the reality was that once i once i took this framework and looked at other defects through it it helped me understand it much better for instance in the us the purity fetish is present in the way that American socialists today, at least, read their history. Um, it's also present in, in the way that some segments of the American left read parts of the working class, more specifically the, the Trump part of the working class. And in both cases, because the history of America is not pure, it's rejected wholesale. Um, the positive parts are, are, are reified, separated, and they're considered to be um, something that's outside of America. So the history of American, uh, of the struggle for black liberation, the history of labor struggles, the history of socialist struggles, they're considered to be outside of America and fighting against America. And you start to see these, these ultra left bombastic slogans appear, such as, you know, um, what socialism means is abolish America. And it's just ridiculous. Uh, and it, it's grounded, the purity fetish, the way that it manifests itself in politics not only prevents people from acquiring truth, because in essence, what the thinking that they're doing is, is anti-dialectical thinking. They can't look at reality from the angle of uh, social totalities. Uh, they can't see the interconnection of all things, the, the movement of all things. They can't see reality in process. Uh, they can't see the role of objective contradictions in, in, in history and in, in the development of society. And in, in not doing that, they're not only not capable of grasping truth, but they also are incapable of successfully organizing uh, so the struggles for socialism. So it's it's telling that the, the part of the world that has been the most critical of socialist experiments in the global South and East has been the one least capable of doing anything in its countries. And so this, this problem of worldview, it, it doesn't end in the worldview because worldviews are are encompassing. They reflect themselves in actions, and it it's a failure of outlook that reflects itself then in a failure of organizing. And we don't have time to continue failing. Right. You know, our leaders are tiptoeing us towards nuclear Armageddon, towards climate destruction, and and we don't have time to waste. Uh, especially when you know the energies of the people, I think, are are heading towards areas uh, where. Um, there's tremendous revolutionary potential. I, we were talking before we came on that the school I teach in is in one of the poorest areas of Illinois. And I experience it with my students. They're just tired of the way that things are. They're tired. As soon as we get to the sections on Marx, Engels, and Lenin in, in my history of philosophy courses, they just get it. You know, they it, it feels to them as if you're putting words to something that they have been experiencing their whole life. Uh, and I, I think from my experience organizing and, and teaching in the Midwest, 
uh, and, and doing so in the South as well, that that's somewhat general in the rest of the nation. And if we had strong party structures organized along lines that, you know, prevent this purity fetish, that prevent, um, you know, some of the PMC culture that arises through the engagement of, of uh, through the institutions of the media, um, NGOs, and the academy, which are not fully antagonistic to the working class, but can hinder the working class's struggle against uh, monopoly capital. If we're able to prevent that and have an, an organization that can shift this revolutionary energy that erupts every once in a while in the population towards substantial ends and, and organize it properly, we, we could transform the nation. Um, so I, I, I do think that the, this critique that I'm doing, although at times it, it gets into the weeds of philosophy, the aim of it is always uh, a, a form of thinking that's aimed at trans, transforming reality in a revolutionary manner. Greg, what do you think? Well, I, I'm, a, I'm an admirer of, of the effort of Midwestern Marx. I'm, I'm excited uh, by the fact that there is, rooted in the Midwest, a strong uh, um, commitment to, to, to social change. And, and I'm extremely happy that it found its way to Marxism Leninism because I think that's what we need desperately in this country. Uh, I'm encouraged because what Carlos and, and others associated with Midwestern Marx, and not only that, I mean, there are other young scholars like uh, Gabriel Rockhill, and not so young, but uh, prominent and important, like uh, Vijay Prashad, who are um, taking on, they're tackling this ideological um, uh, road uh, speed bump. No, it's worse than a speed bump. It's a dam, really, constructed to keep young people in the West, in the US and in Europe, from uh, understanding and grasping their own history, their own history of struggle. And uh, to see that emerging now after a long period where, where it wasn't here, where Western Marxism, what, what Carlos describes as Western Marxism, has held court, is really for me very, very exciting. And I think we can't underestimate just how important that work is because that is such an obstacle to going forward. And it's been an obstacle for a long time. I mean, since the era of McCarthy, when the uh, communist left was dismantled and the friends of the communist uh, left were dismantled, we've had nothing but anarchist-driven ideology, essentially, in this country. That's the fundamental basis of it. And uh, so this is very, very exciting to me. And, and the book, I think, is the best that Midwestern Marx has put out. And I'm, right. I'm excited about uh uh, future things too. Uh, just personal note: growing up in high school in Georgetown, Illinois, uh, as a coal mining community until 1947, and I was born in 47. So, and my uncle moved to Southern Illinois and raised me to work in the mines. We'd come home on the weekends because the mines were in Southern Illinois. But I had a friend who was a hellraiser, Billy Matthews, and in trouble all the time, getting kicked around. And, and I was a bit of an iconoclast and probably an anarchist more than anything at the time, but I, I stood out in Georgetown, Illinois. And years later, I come back and I see Billy and he says, Greg, I owe it all to you. And I said, oh, what to me? And he says, well, I'm the president of the General Motors local here, which, which he fought like hell to keep going. But really, that's great. He says, you're the first person to talk to me about these subjects. And you told me about Paul Robeson. Well, that was bullshit. I didn't know who Paul Rosen was back then, but I felt so good about that, about seeing how this transformation occurred and how he became a fighter 
from workers in the, in that area. Uh, turned out a losing battle, but uh, he stayed the course. And so it, it's it's where we have to be. And I think the chapter, and then I'll shut up for let Carlos talk some more. But the chapter on on uh, effect of uh, Western Marxism on the U.S. and those three particular points that Carlos makes about it in terms of looking at the legacy of socialism, looking at the U.S. working class, and of course the necessity of engaging the U.S. working class. I think those are very, very important. Very important. Yeah, Carlos, let me add to that uh, or follow up with that. I saw one podcast you were talking about your life. You grew up in uh, Miami in a Cuban area, in a poor area with uh, Hispanics and Blacks, and you had certain values that were um, associated with that environment, and you moved to college and you realize that much of what you believed was wrong or was you're you're able to, to change your belief system very being a dialectical thinker uh and as greg greg did and i, I and i i'm not very proud of my uh high school um value system it changed so that's part of what i thought was so good about your book is that People get stuck and fixated on this idea that we have to have this rigidity of beliefs, and we don't realize that um, that change comes from contradictions. Change comes from experience. Change comes from new knowledge. And if you develop that dialectical thinking, uh, that's sort of the foundation of how Marx saw change too. Am, am I am I correct in that? Absolutely. And uh, just a, a side comment, is there a non-Cuban part of Miami? <laughs> I, I have I have Cuban friends. They're just they're just fun as hell. Uh, they're, they're... But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Hegel has this famous passage that change is, is uh, contradiction is the, the root of all movement and vitality. So um, life is 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 in a constant flux and a constant state of change. And it it's not just bouncing around. It's it's moving through internal forces that things have that uh, mix and uh, with external influences and and causes incessant uh, change. And you know that's a it's it's very easy to see that dogmatic um, form of dead thinking that just uh, wants these scriptures and and to have these unchanging principles and doctrines that uh, that they that people can live their lives by and in a way. In the, in the Western Marxist tradition, at times that's been the treatment of what socialism or Marxism has been in their heads. Um, it's it's I think uh, easy to see how that's grounded in Christianity and and the institutionalization of of Christianity, which is something that <coughs> Domenico Lasordo and um, other scholars of Brazilian communist uh, Jones Monell they show quite well. You know how from Christian uh, uh, messianism. You have this tradition that uh, reflects itself in the in the thought of of Western socialists, but it goes far far uh, more back than than Christianity. In a way, a lot of these uh, debates and forms of thinking that arise with uh, Christianity are just um, you know uh, rehashed versions of uh, ways of looking at the world that have existed uh, uh, prior. And I think that you know I've I've been told that it, it's it's hard to um, that that the hardest part of the book was that first chapter, where I developed uh, almost genealogically 
the sources of the purity fetish outlook in Iliadic philosophy, uh, Parmenides and, and Zeno and others. And I see it as this clash of outlooks between the Iliadics and, and Heraclitus, who is the, the first uh, and fullest dialectician of the ancient world. But I think it's incredibly important um, because it's rooted in a way of, of thinking about the question of universals and the question of truth and the question of um, of, of, of entities and, and of process and and how it is that these things um, actually are. And although there's hints of dialectical thinking in a lot of philosophers from you know uh, from you know 500 years before Christ on onwards all the way to Hegel, you know the essence has always been that uh, what's true is that which is unchanging and that which stays the same throughout space and time. That has been the essence of how Western philosophy has thought about universals. Um, and that presents a, a big mistake. And when it gets incorporated into the Western Marxist outlook, it's natural why it is that um, that it treats the conclusions arrived at by Marx, Engels, and Lenin in such a static and, and dogmatic fashion. The paradox is that they claim that it was Soviets who were the real dogmatists and, and the mechanical thinkers and, and the vulgar Marxists. But, um, you know, take, for instance, the, the case of, of constructing socialism in the U.S., which, you know, the purity fetish, uh, as of recently, um, has manifested itself uh, in, this, in this view that sees America in a very one-sided form, in a very static form, it says the history of the U.S. can be reduced to the history of settler colonialism, of imperialism, of slavery, of genocide, uh, of exploitation and expropriation of the peoples of the world. And while that's definitely true of the American ruling class or state, and at times, thanks to you know racist false consciousness and other forms of false consciousness, to parts of uh, specifically the white working class, it it's an unfair untrue one-sided picture of America as a social totality because what you find is that from the very beginning you have these very much progressive and emancipatory forces uh, as emancipatory as they could be for you know 1776 uh, that are genuinely concerned with the struggle for for human freedom uh, the struggle against slavery the struggle struggle for the emancipation of labor and that's a part of the American social totality just as much as the other side is. And it's not without reason that American history textbooks, um, you could see it in this the this book from Michael Parenti, History is Mystery. In the first chapter, he discusses the these meta-studies that had been done on US textbooks for the last hundred years or so. And what you find is that there's scant mention of the history of the labor movement. There's scant mention of, of the struggles that won emancipation for four million black slaves in the South. There's there's no mention of the history of struggles of our people. And when it is mentioned, it is either whitewashed or fully demonized. And there's reasons why the ruling class and their ideologues do this. They don't do this without reason. It's because history is not just about how we think about the past. It is these histories and these myths which shape the present and shape the trajectory of the future. And so in changing, uh, in, in changing how it is that we have come to think about America, through this very McCarthyite uh, line, which says that uh, you know America's on one side, the American people are on one side, and on the other side, it's socialism, and there's un this unbridgeable gulf in between. You know, when the left accepts that, 
what they're doing is taking the gun that McCarthyism was pointing at communists, which they fought very hard against in their time, and just taking that gun and pointing it at themselves. They're just accepting right. the wrong assumptions that McCarthyism led the American people, uh, a big chunk of the American people to believe. And you fight that uh, not by accepting it. You fight that by, by presenting a correct, concrete, dialectical picture of American history. Uh, by rejecting this phenomenon which Georgi Dimitrov called national nihilism, which says that, you know, because the history of your country is not perfect, because it includes impurities, it ought to be fully rejected. There's nothing we can take from it. That's the nihilism part. You have to reject that outlook. You know, today China is, uh, um, is, is the place where perhaps the collapse of the Soviet Union, the overthrow of the Soviet Union has been studied the most thoroughly because they, they're trying to prevent uh, you know, the same outcome. And they they see the struggle against what, what they're calling historical nihilism as one of the most fundamental that has to uh, uh, that, that has to be done. You know, they you see from from she repeated quotes that uh, and all the way from Deng that they're not going to do to Mao what was done in the Soviet Union in the process of destalinization to Stalin, um, because this destroys a people's history. And by destroying their history, you destroy their present and you destroy their future. And when it comes to the U.S., by accepting the narrative that there's no progressive socialist labor uh, abolitionist uh, tradition, um, you are telling the American people that the struggle for socialism is one that is incompatible with their history, with the traditions that they have come to cherish. Um, and you're shooting yourself in the foot. And again, here we have not only the phenomenon where the purity fetish leads to falsehood, in terms of the assessment of a situation, but it also to futility in terms of organizing. It's a lot different uh, when you go up to a working class person and you tell them that, you know, America is purely evil, that America is reducible to all these bad things, and that socialism means abolishing America and all the traditions that they love. It's different when you tell them, look, this is the, the history of America that the ruling class has presented. The reality is that there's a counter history. There's a counter history of progressive struggles that have seen themselves as the, the late historian now, Stoughton Lynn uh, argued, they have seen themselves as in line with the best parts of the democratic creed of 1776. They have seen that, you know, in order to, to guarantee the right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, a government of, by, and for the people, national self-determination, all things which are in the Declaration of Independence, to guarantee that the logical and practical conclusion is socialism. You know, this, these have been things that have been referenced by Ho Chi Minh in the Declaration of Independence of Vietnam. They've been referenced by Fidel Castro in uh, History Will Absolve Me. And it's absurd for American communists to not take up this legacy of struggle uh, of its national past and use it to shape the consciousness of the American people in redirecting them towards the struggle for socialism. It, you know, uh, uh, Democracy Now! today had Jeffrey Sachs on, which uh, I, 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 for part of me, wasn't he the guy that came to the Soviet Union, reorganized the Soviet Union? And I, and I thought I I thought I thought was, um, I've had a little bit of difficulty with him, but boy, his interview on China today was on Democracy Now! was right on. You know, they're four, we're 4% we're of the population, they're 17% of the world's population, and economically, we're almost equal. And then you look at the response to COVID. You know, we had 4% of the population, 16% of the deaths. They had a, a fraction of a percent of the deaths. 
they're now looking at uh, helping with uh, world negotiations. They're they're all of their new initiatives. They're creating their own world bank. They're they're you know they're progressing. Uh, the amount of you had a whole section in your book about the you know how they in unprecedented move people from poverty out of poverty in a greater number than anybody. But here's the purity fetish. But TikTok, they're they're spying on us, you know. But they're uh, and you know there's this there's always about a what 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 aboutism associated with this that stops us from looking at what are the ultimate goals. And Sachs was very very clear in the interview today that we just can't stand not to be the world dominant person, and we're and we're we're losing that capacity, and so we demonize and we um you know we, we you know we, we don't we can't sit back and look at the relationship of what is progress because it's not just this perfectly pure progress it's like the uh the musk rocket you know you know okay learn from your errors and keep progressing um i don't know what what do you think about that i mean we we we're losing the narrative against China. You know, China is this horrible uh, entity. And certainly I've got a lot of problems with China. I mean, I do have problems with it, but ultimately I don't think that, I, I don't think, see, we see what good they're doing also and how they're trying to do some good. Right. It's, uh, well, it's, it's been interesting hearing all this talk about TikTok being communist when, I mean, we were for a, a very long time the largest communist entity on TikTok, and we got banned. We've had our accounts banned seven times. We've had to make eight accounts, <laughs> and now we're on our eighth one. And uh, we just got a warning uh, the other day, and all we're doing is, you know, um, uh, teaching people Marxist theory and using the Marxist worldview to analyze geopolitics and national politics. So just this whole talk about, you know. <laughs> has 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 just been uh um kind of laughable from from our end but especially with you know the the what edward snowden and stuff has revealed about the nsa spying on americans it's just it's made it uh very difficult to uh to see it without uh somewhat of a a, a laughable smile but uh i did want to say that you know part of the part of the, the problem in viewing china of course uh, it's been able to lift 800 million people out of poverty, something that uh, is unprecedented. And uh, it's been congratulated by uh, the UN for, for doing, and there's international organizations studying how it, how it was that it was able to accomplish that. Um, and it's done besides that a whole host of wonderful things related to lifting the living standards of their people, to engaging in international trade in a way that's, that's fair and that helps to develop the infrastructure of countries which have been kept uh, for centuries uh, in, in poverty, thanks to colonialism, imperialism, neo-colonialism, um, it's 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 done wonderful things. It has its its, its flaws. They admit that they have uh, their flaws. They're probably uh, the most critical of 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 anyone who I I see critique China, uh, because their criticisms of themselves, their self-criticism, is grounded in as concrete an understanding of the Chinese situation as you can possibly uh, get. So they're very clear about not being perfect and about striving uh, towards improvement and 
I think that what you have to do is look at the Chinese trajectory. Um, and it's indubitable that while in the U.S., what we've had is nothing but decline and, you know, the, the appearance uh, for more than a decade now of a very moribund state. Um, in China, you've, you've seen progress as you've never seen it before in human history. Now, where does the purity fetish come in with the Western left? In 1978, uh, during the process that was called reform and opening up, which didn't just, you know, spontaneously arise in Deng's head one day, he didn't just wake up and say, well, let's uh, do reform and opening up today. It was was a process that was a result of a lot of struggles within the party, a lot of debate. And it was decided that, uh, you know, the correct route for a China that, although it had developed tremendously before that, was still very much poor and uh, um, needed to develop the, the forces of production, the sciences, the technologies, the, their military capabilities to both defend itself from, from imperialism, but just to, to show the people that socialism works. You know, it's hard arguing uh, that socialism works when, you know, all they're experiencing is, is, is poverty. Um, so they took this, this route that uh, they opened themselves up to foreign capital first in various areas and then they continued expanding and this uh, opening up brought of course private enterprise it brought capitalists it's developed into you know um, even billionaires existing in China it's developed the market economy uh, and the western Marxists uh, thanks to the lens of what I'm calling the purity fetish sees that it's it's not pure it doesn't live up to the standard of what uh, the ideals of socialism ought to be uh, full control over uh, production by the proletarian state and um, oh, and uh, and uh, no market. So the anarchy of the market is removed and you just have uh, controlled uh, centralized planning. And the reality is that uh, in both instances, in terms of, uh, of state ownership over the means of production and in terms of uh, centralized planning, both are still the dominant force in China. Private enterprise and markets are an auxiliary of the Chinese economy and are used and uh, re restricted and restrained to serve the needs of the people, to serve the needs of developing the forces of production, uh, of developing China and of forging the path towards socialism. Yes, capital exists and yes, there's big capital, but unlike in the US and in capitalist countries, it is the people through the Communist Party that have been able to, I think, extremely successfully use capital in such a way that uh, it's serving the ends of socialism. Whereas in the West, of course, what you have is, you know, capital in command fully. Um, so people try to draw these distinctions, especially from uh, the angle of the Western uh, Marxists, to just say that China state capitalism, it's, it's capitalism, but a little bit more authoritarian. And um, it's it's a capitalist socialism and it's not what it is. It's, it's, it's socialism and it's very embryonic stages where it still has to survive in a very hostile uh, global capitalist system uh, that's dominated uh, or has been dominated for the last 70 or so years since uh, the end of the, the Second World War by an American imperialism, which is very friendly of using hybrid warfare uh, to topple any government that uh, tries to exist outside its sphere of influence, be it socialist or not. So it, these are very difficult conditions for constructing socialism and force any country to interact with the global markets and uh, 
you know, an, another thing that should be noted, uh, which was, it was noted by Marx and it was noted by Lenin, was the fact that um, when you speak about a mode of production as a, the larger form of talking about a mode of life, it's never fully and purely one form of uh, property that exists, one form of production. In capitalism right now, we have a variety of different forms of property, but we realize that there's one property which is central, um, which dominates all the other ones and which uh, all the other ones are uh, mediated by. And that form of property, of, of course, is capitalist private property, which has developed to the stage of monopoly capital. In China, it's the same thing. Yes, they do have form, non-socialist forms of property, but the dominant forms of property are socialist. And those forms of property are the ones that mediate how it is that the others function. So this idea that, you know, when when you look at uh, a social totality, um, you you will expect there to be only one mode of production, is is untrue. And it's a it led, for instance, uh, in in Lenin's criticisms of of Kautsky, Kautsky uh, said that in the first imperialist war, uh, that it wasn't a purely imperialist war because there was certain elements of it that were national uh, that that uh, were national liberation struggles and because it wasn't a pure imperialism he used that lack of purity to support the imperialist war amongst other things related to his right opportunism and, and social chauvinism lenin critiqued this and he has a very famous passage where he says neither on earth or in heaven nowhere are you going to find in nature uh, uh, human society or in thinking anything that's pure um, you're not going to find a pure mode of production anywhere there's always one that's dominant and others that exist alongside it, and they get their meaning according to the dominant one. And that's what you have in China. And what you have is the Western left looking at the fact that there exist auxiliary forms of production who have their aims mediated by the dominant socialist form of production. And they look at that and say, oh, look, it's capitalism. We have to reject China or call it uh, you know, a revisionist or say that it took the capitalist road or whatever. And, you know, again, it's not just uh, a matter of them being uh, false when they do that, them not being able to accurately reflect uh, concrete reality concretely. It's also a matter of them not being able to organize people, because if the Western left genuinely believes, as they do, that every socialist experiment that has taken root has failed and has been not actually socialism, and specifically with the case of China and its immense successes, um, how do you organize working people for socialism? You know, how do you go up to a population that has been dogmatically made to believe that communism is evil and tell them, hey, I'm fighting for communism, but all of the things that they told you about how communism, how bad communism is and how bad these socialist states are, all of those are actually true. You know, who, who, how stupid does a working class person have to be to follow you in, in, that, in that process um, where everyone has failed but us, the virtuous West, us, the exceptional American socialists, we're the ones that are actually going to succeed. You know, it's 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 BS. And, and the reality is that we would be getting a whole lot farther in our class struggle if we'd be able to show the American working class the immense, the immense successes that socialist countries have been able to achieve under the most brutal uh, um, hybrid warfare regimes from imperialism. The conditions that they have had to do, what they've done, have been extremely difficult, and yet what they've been able to do has been extremely amazing. Well, we don't control the media, you know. Um, you know, we had Harry Belafonte die today. Uh, uh, 
And what was his opinion on South Africa? In apartheid. And who was the prominent person that developed our policy that? Dick Cheney, who considered everybody was communist there. Yeah. You know? The uh, yeah. question of China, I think, is, is, is an interesting, but also a kind of, it's, it's a bit of a trap. Uh, I, I refer back to a pamphlet that R. Palma Dutt wrote in the 60s. Uh, Dutt was a prominent Anglo-Indian uh, communist, uh, leader in the British Communist Party. And uh, the name of that, that pamphlet was Wither China, this is in the 60s. And to me, that's the essential question. And that's, if we want to stay on the dialectical rails, that's the way we have to look at China today, uh, in the future, and in the past, as we have to ask the question is, where is it going at any particular moment? Not so much where it's been, but where it's going to go. The history of China is, is, is like the history of any country, and certainly socialist countries, a checkered one. I mean, we go back to the Shanghai massacre and the, the destruction of the uh, working class component of the Chinese Communist Party which led to the rural elements under Mao being the ascendant leadership uh, group. And we see that, that one of the features of that, one of the material conditions that play out in that, in that fact, in that reality, is voluntarism, which has been a, was a feature of much of Mao's term and time. So that we find that in the 60s and the 50s in particular, the idea that you can just create thousands of backyard steel mills is an element of voluntarism and expression that Mao gave. But I don't want to belabor that, but but it is a it is a response that I think Ding made. I think Ding swung the, swung the other way. In other words, he rejected that voluntarism and his leadership rejected it as he, as he, as he should have, but perhaps a little bit too far. That's to be seen. But I'm circumspect about China for that reason. The history of uh, Chinese foreign policy in the 60s and 70s is not a nice one. And sometimes in the conversations I see on the left, um, that's left out. It's sort of, sort of forgotten the fact that they made, uh, that Mao made his deal with, uh, with Nixon and that during the 60s and 70s, the Chinese supported, massively supported the, the liberation music, the quote unquote liberation movements in Africa that the U.S. supported, FNLA, UNITAS, uh, they were anti-ANC and, and anti-FALIMO, you go through it, anti-PIGC, they were on the other side in that in foreign policy. So I think we have, to, we have to be a little measured and we have to look at where it's going. My own sense is that things are going better, that some of the, the realities that, um, that uh, she is facing today with the U.S. rejectionism and U.S. hostility, and and this insane insane new Cold War, is forcing him to return to Marx, to return to uh, the roots of the a Communist Party. But in my view, they're riding a tiger, and and they've ridden, they they have rode that tiger rather well, very very well, and we should respect that. But in the end, and this goes back to Carlos's book, which argues this very very forcefully and correctly. We have to stop this Cold War nonsense against China. We cannot tolerate that. That's a disaster for those of us that are communist, socialist, that, uh, that believe in progress in this country and want to see things change. We have to reject that. That's just an ugly, the ugliest possible side of, uh, of, of uh, U.S. policies. Yeah, I agree. And uh, 
it's very difficult, especially uh, the the foreign policy positions that China took in those years. I don't think they're the, the positions themselves are defensible. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, we recently published this other book from Carlos Martinez called No Great Wall. And one of the things that he uh, explains in that book with relationship to the foreign policy is that um, that was part of, uh, it, it was a component of what allowed China to develop simply because it wasn't being attacked by imperialism uh, because in part it was supporting imperialist operations around the world. And while the Soviet Union had to spend so many resources fighting against that. And that's a very ugly history that uh, um, we don't usually talk about, but I, I think, you know, I, I don't think that um, that China is obviously immune to critique. I, I think that there are fair critiques. The wild 90s, um, as they call it, uh, were were not very nice for, for working people. And uh, in the 2000s, it got to the point where, I read this from, from Roland Bohr's uh, work, it got to the point where you know you could just ask regular party officials about Marxism and they they wouldn't know anything. You know it was it was very corrupt and you know in in a way this the ever since she got into power, the transformation has been just completely uh, you know tremendous uh, towards towards the, a, a better route. But with with the people that have been involved in that process, part of what they're saying is that even those uglier periods, which made it very hard to uh, support uh, China's efforts and or describe it even as socialist for many, even like Parenti, you know, I think Parenti is, uh, you know, uh, perhaps one of the best, if not the best uh, uh, of the American uh, communist historians. And he was very skeptical of, of China in, in the 90s. He had thought that it had gone down the capitalist you know, liberal route. Um, and the people that are involved in the process that see the transformation that has occurred since she, they acknowledge that there has been a struggle within the party, but they they see that trajectory um, as as one that uh, in, as one wherein there's no breaks, there's no like solid breaks, but each part has played, regardless of how ugly or pretty it has appeared, an integral part for the development of of the whole. Um, so it's in other words, it's 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 hard to say it like this but it's been in in some ways I, I think it's it's fair to think of it as necessary evils that have led to the condition that we have now which is a, a very much a, a greater good and i mean without china today where it, it'd be very a very bleak situation for the global movement uh towards socialism so it's tough uh and i, I do think that part of the position that we're in as as people that are in the West uh, is is one that forces us to emphasize our analysis of of China, especially with the general public. Perhaps not with comrades, but with the general public, it forces us to emphasize the positive parts, to debunk the myths that are said about China, and to push for for peace and cooperation and as they call it, win win relations and a shared uh, common future for for humanity. Those are all things that in other essays I've, I've explored as as ideas that are in a way, uh, you know, fundamental to what the leading ideologues of American democracy have have thought from Jefferson to John Dewey to Du Bois to MOK, you know. Um, so it's it, I think it's very easy once you tell the American people the truth, 
for them to get on board with uh, supporting China and 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 you know being against this hawkish uh, attempt by the U.S. to 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 wage war against China and and Russia as well. You know, I I'm I'm frustrated with the um, the news media. You know, obviously we have Tucker Carlson that's gone. And uh, I'll show you my frustration. So I watched Sean Hannity. I wanted to see what he would say about that. Of course, he said nothing. Literally, he had nothing to say about his colleague being fired. He talked about the the uh, Biden's uh, laptop. Um, he talked about the fact that um, uh, that our president is senile. And um, then he had a segment about how problematic it is that the Biden administration trumped up 50 different security analysts to uh, gin up a fake document about how the, the laptop was all Russia propaganda, which is absolutely 100% true. You know, the first two segments were just bullshit. That's the third one was like right on the right on the money. This is a problem. And it goes to Jen, uh, Jen Pasky, the redheaded uh, lady that's a new MSNBC uh, person on. She has on Bernie Ward and Ber or, or Bernie uh, Sanders. And he he is talking about the problem of health care and income inequity and all of these other things that are very uh, medical bills and um you know, the the really important things. And what does the MSNBC reporter want to talk about? Uh, trans issues and pronouns and, you know, and I'm going, how can we, we have no accurate information that is coming from our media to, to really help people realize that we're that there's a class war here and we need to organize to deal with that and Capitalism, by its very nature, is not going to be a good companion to help with that. Uh, I, I, I did you expect the media to to be different? Well, did you expect the media to be on your side? I guess I guess I get I get so frustrated about how well the right wing is able to frame arguments. Uh, obviously, Tucker Carlson made a living off white supremacy and and rage and you know, Father Copland. Well, uh, had, had pro probably the only break in the unanimity of the of the mass media is a Tucker Carlson, who occasionally, very rarely, but occasionally gets it right. Probably he's he said more positive things about China than anybody else has, if you if you dig into it. That's the reality of it. And and that's why he's gone, basically. I mean, I, you're, you're, as bad as he is, he's the only crack in the whole thing, and and now he's gone. So and, you're, and like you're that. and and you're making my point for me. And the and you have I've been following Matt Taibbi. I think he's doing wonderful work. Who's he being? He's threatened to be thrown <laughs> in jail by the Democrats in Congress. He's doing yeah. he's doing more important work than Snowden did. So it it no it, no not more important than Snowden, but 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 he. He's being he's being blasted. I mean, threatening puts a guy in jail because he's cooperating with Elon Musk on on revealing truths. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But everybody agrees that you know that he's. But he is a bit of an arrogant uh, liberal. I mean, that's he walked into that trap because his ego was so damn big. He should have known 
that they were they they were trapping it. That they well, were, you, they, you, they, you should have texted him, Greg, before he did that. But that that yeah, goes to what they, that, that goes to your to your your book, Carlos. Is that you you know you have to get people have to be ready for this, and it seems like that that people should be ready for this. We have student loan that's crushing people. We've got income inequity that's getting worse and worse and worse. I mean, our whole system, it, we have young people just never, ever going to be able to buy a house. Uh, we have uh, billionaires running our policy through NGOs and, and, and so forth. I mean, it seems like we're primed to be in a position where we could have some reasonable social change. And yet we have no ability to get the information out to people that will frame this in such a way that is going to productively move us forward. I mean, Eddie talked about this when he was organizing the uh, strikers in the, I, I don't know, was it a tractor plant or so forth. And he's got these people on the picket line that are Trump supporters and MAGA hats and so forth. And they're right on the same page with what's wrong with their situation. You know, it, 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 they, they have common, they have common features that are important. I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to, you gotta, you how to get around this. Chapters, read the last chapters in, in Carlos's book. That's where you get some of the answers to this because he, he outlines very carefully. It's a classic Marxist position. That the objective conditions that we we are suffering under today are, are there. I mean, they're, they're right. They couldn't be more right. The subjective conditions, the conditions to move people into action are not there because we don't have the proper vehicles. And the proper vehicles historically have been a vanguard party. Let's cut to the chase, a communist party, uh, uh, a workers party. And uh, you have to have people who are committed to going to working class people and, and showing respect for them. Not not condescending, not saying, well, how come you don't understand what I understand? Or why aren't you using the right pronouns? You, that, that's not going to work. And it never has to work. You know, when you read, Wyndham Mortimer has a book about the organization of the UAW. When they were organizing the UAW in Detroit, there was a thing called the Black Legions. And they were stronger than communists were, the Communist Party was in Detroit. They were stronger than the Socialist Party. They were stronger than the UAW. But they won. They won because they went to working people and they said, this is your interest and we're going to organize around your interest. The Black Legion would shoot organizers and leave a bullet on their chest. We don't confront anything like that today, what they confronted at that particular time. Those lessons are there, but they're not going to be gotten by the mass media. The mass media is not going to do it for you, for us. Lawyers aren't going to do it for us. It's like women's rights. I mean, abortion rights. Nothing happens. The Supreme Court kicks it out and nothing happens. Nobody's in the streets. Nobody's organizing. That's how weak and and uh, that that's how just how, how how badly organized we are. We we want someone else, someone should do something about that. I hear that all the time. Somebody should do something about all that. Somebody should make a change. Right. And I it's difficult because specifically in in, in that area. Uh, the necessity of organizing called the more backward elements of the working class, elevating their social consciousness. Um, and in the other area of the reading of American history by American communists, it has been the Marxist-Leninists, which have been the best at it uh, in the U.S., the tradition of the Communist Party. And unfortunately, these two new forms of the purity fetish 
have been appearing um, more consistently, at least in the more anarchistic elements of, you know, organizations that proclaim themselves to be uh, Marxist-Leninist. And that's that's very un unfortunate, but it is from a lot of these organizations where you get similar uh, treatments of parts of large swaths of the working class that's, you know, just supported Trump because of the fake anti-establishment discourse. They were tired of the way that things were, and he presented himself as the guy that was going to drain the swamp. You get to, to a discourse in some of these communist spaces about these people that resembles very much Hillary Clinton's basket of deplorables. So the transition has been made from let's get the backward elements of the working class and elevate their social consciousness because we organize on the basis of class and not on the basis of the ideology that the working class people have. It has gone from that to how uh, much do these people uh, match to my uh, grocery list of pure ideas and, and positions, moral positions, social positions that they have to have in order for me to organize them. And that ends up making the communist just uh, a person that preaches to the crowd. You can't bring anyone new in if the precondition for you talking to them is them already accepting what it is that you're going to tell them. There you go. You have to transform their thinking. And that means that you have to engage with people who the mainstream media is going to tell you are very despicable, racist, bigots, et cetera, et cetera. In reality, look, I live in the Midwest. I've been living uh, for some years in various cities in the Midwest. And uh, I'm surrounded by Trump uh, supporters. The vast majority of them, overwhelming majority of them, do not fit the picture that's being put out uh, by the mainstream media and a lot of communist groups of these people as just these massive bigots and you know these fascists uh, uh, presenting this fascist threat. That's not what they are. They're regular working people um, who saw in Trump something different. And in a certain way, that segment of the population, which uh, is part of the working class and voted for Trump because they thought it was something different, is even more ahead in terms of consciousness because they're tired of the way things are. And they went with Trump because they thought it was something new. But the problem is that what they actually want is never going to be given to them by Trump, by Bernie, by the Democrats, by the Republicans. It's, it can only come about through socialism. And they are in 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 in, in very serious and concrete ways uh, the portion of the population that in, is in terms of consciousness uh, one of the most ripe uh, for developing class consciousness, and uh, you know this big chunk of the communist movement or of communist organizations ignore it because they don't because of the purity fetish they they don't measure up to the ideals that they must have uh, as a precondition for them being organized. And that's very sad. When I was um, when I was uh, finishing my undergrad and uh, uh, the last year of my undergrad, that Bernie's campaign came up. Um, we were organizing with the Bernie campaign, and although of course I have a million disagreements with that line of uh, Democratic Party quote unquote progressives, um, I I I learned a lot from that because it forced me to to organize working people to talk to thousands of people to knock you know, hundreds and hundreds of doors. And what ended up happening was that the vast majority of the people that joined the socialist club that we had, it was called the labor club, where we were organizing for Bernie through, the vast majority of them came from poor working class and farmer backgrounds that were pro-Trump. Because it was very easy to convince them that, yeah, if they already think the news uh, is um, false news, fake news, it's just, hey... <laughs> 
the same people telling you it's fake news, they're also fake news. So let's look at the whole thing right. uh, and see how all of it is bullshit and, and uh, designed to get you to agree to the ruling ideas because that's how the ruling order reproduces itself. And it was it was very easy to get them on board. So that that's, those are the three forms that I see the purity fetish manifesting itself. So I see it as a worldview that then takes determinate forms in various issues. One of them is, of course, uh, how we view social estates. The other one is, you know, which sections of the working class are pure enough to organize. And the last one is the, the phenomenon of national nihilism, um, which we were, you know, successful for many years in avoiding in the U.S. But as of recent, uh, you know, it's it's the order of the day in many organizations that claim themselves to be communist and, and uh, Marxist-Leninist. So all of these things, I think, have to be, they have to be destroyed in order not just to engage with truth, but to organize working people successfully. And uh, we also, we haven't touched on it yet, but it's also important to see the class background of, of a, a big chunk of, of the left and how it is that the ideas that reflect themselves and that uh, the ideas through which uh, these flaws permeate, they're grounded on the class position of a good chunk of the left, which is what, um, you know, uh, various Marxists have called uh, the professional managerial class. It's this sort of in-between segment between workers and, and, and capitalists that develops its, its own distinctive social consciousness through the uh, interactions they have in, in the iron triangle of the media, uh, the NGOs, and, and the academy. And these ideas uh, do not just stay there. They, uh, they trickle down into socialist organizations and influence the way that these people approach working class people. And, you know, working class people smell it when they, when they have their socialist and communist organizations uh, meeting feel like HR meetings or diversity, equity, and inclusion meetings that's not going to prompt them to to stay there very much longer. And so we also have to assess the the objective conditions which have led to these ideological, to the, the permanence of this purity fetish in, in, in the Western and, and U.S. left. The objective conditions are those, the class position of these people and the immense amount of influence that the State Department uh, has had in, in allowing these uh, mistakes to fester and to grow and to be proliferated. There's a, a lot of money behind uh, making socialist and communist organizations fall into the purity fetish, divide and, and, and present themselves in ways that uh, make it so that working people don't want to touch them with a 10-foot pole. Yeah, I think that was the best part of your book. Greg mentioned the last part where the rejection of the purity fetish, uh, the forms it takes in the U.S., rejection of the uh, actually existing socialism, rejection of the backward worker, which is you're talking about that, and rejection of the national past is erasing the national past. And uh, those are definitely um, you know, roadblocks to getting things getting things done. Hey, Carlos, you are just uh, you're a great fellow, and we haven't even we haven't got to the second hour where we need to talk about your your other book. You're you're a prolific little fellow. Uh, and I will, I will link to, uh, your book, of course, but I want to link to West, to your Midwestern Marxism, Marxist, uh, uh, podcast, which I'm kind of, a am a big fan of. I, 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 Eddie's doing a great job with, uh, carrying the torches. You're, you're busy, but you're there doing it too. And, uh, it's just a wonderful, um, 
a wonderful way to learn about uh, Marxism, and it's done with fun, and it's not mean spirited, and it's not preachy. It's um, it's 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 a great great site that everyone should have bookmarked. So we'll we'll make a link to that too. Has Vosh ever come on and debated uh, Eddie yet, or are they just uh, in Twitter wars with each other? Oh yeah, it's that guy is so slimy. Um, it's, it's, I don't follow it much. I, I've I'd never dug into those those weird spaces of of terminally online uh, socialists or anarchists or whatever the hell they are. But I mean, it's it's so very clearly in the tradition of like the Congress for Cultural Freedom style left. Uh, that's just directly aimed at sabotaging. The understanding of socialism abroad and the struggle for socialism at home and um the sad part is that you know the way that these ideological terrains of social media and and you know other types of media like youtube the way that these work is that the stuff that ends up going viral is a lot of this stupid stuff yeah. you know you're yeah. just debunking idiots yeah. like Bausch or you know uh, ben shapiro or, or uh, peterson and you know, Eddie's, he sends me these voice memos um, and he, he, he tells me like, it's so, it's so infuriating how, you know, I'm working on this very elaborate, um, uh, you know, a, a section by section uh, description and, and summary and elaboration of Lenin's imperialism or something. Uh, and it gets, you know, maybe a thousand, a thousand two hundred, a thousand five hundred views. And then we do a video debunking uh, Jordan Peterson and it gets 10,000 views. And it's just very basic, like, you know, dumb things. And um, it's difficult, but it's it's a it's a game we have to play because at, at the end of the day, these are ideological terrains where, you know, a war of position has to be waged in nonetheless. And part of waging it is understanding when it is that you kind of have to stoop down to the the slimy Vosh level in order to right. to get some views and bring his people in that uh, you know a lot of them are probably working people uh that uh you know uh, the vast majority of americans spend like eight hours on their phone so this whole thing that working people are not on their phone and that uh, this is just appealing to a certain sector of society that's uh, not potentially revolution it's not true you know the vast majority of people are on their phone and you have to wage that fight and a lot of these uh people like Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, or in the left uh, version, uh, Vouch, they have people that have been trapped there and that can be taken out uh, if if we engage with them and and debunk them. And well, uh, um, Col uh, Coleman Hughes recently had Freddie DeBoer on uh, on his website. I, I Freddie DeBoer is absolutely, I think, a national treasure. He does a great Substack. Uh, he's uh, written a great book on education. And he's a Marxist, you know, and he, he's a... Not really, not really. He, he, he is, too. He says he is, Brad. No, he's not a Marxist. All right, anyway. He nice. so, anyway, he yeah. said, but anyway, to your to your point, uh, I'll, I'll, I don't know how to mute Greg, but to, to your <laughs> point, uh, he yeah. says, one of my perpetual, fr fr this is Freddie, one of my professional <laughs> perpetual frustrations is the only people who know less about Marxism than Marxist critics are some of its supporters. And he finds that the default level of, of Marxism the average in the average Twitter account with a hammer and sickle is close to zero. 
Marxism is not anti-enlightenment. It is the culmination of enlightenment. Then he goes on to say it's not anti-democratic. It's, you know, it's for free speech, you know, he, you know, because he was raised with uh, parents that came from that tradition. He comes from it, comes from it well. But it's the it's the idea that sometimes people on the inside are the worst critics and the worst uh, um, uh, ambassadors for what you know for for what we need where we need to be going. So I'm not very familiar with this work, so I, I can't pass oh. judgment on the whether he's Marxist or not. But I'll, I'll, trust me, he's not a Marxist. Trust no, me. No, from that from, from that quote, at least, I mean. Uh, it, it is important, true, and and uh, I, I wonder if I read more of his work, if if I would consider him to be one of the examples of that. <laughs> I don't know, I, I, but um, I I I I do think that um, there's a there's something that uh, a, a transformation in worldview is not as simple as it sounds. You can change your ideas about certain things. But when you think of Marxism as a worldview, that's an all-encompassing transformation of, of, of your thinking, of your aesthetic sensibilities, of your desires, of the way you read history, of the way you read anything. It's a, it's a very comprehensive uh, transformation. And it's not as easy as the people that, you know, just read one or two things, like it, and then boom, they, they got the hammer and sickle up on Twitter. Uh, that's not as easy. And I, I think in, in part, although it's helpful and we should be kind to those people and help them elevate their, their consciousness and understanding of Marxism such that they end up having, you know, the worldview grasped. Um, a lot of these mistakes that you see in Marxists uh, that, uh, you know, I call the, the purity fetish are grounded on the absence of dialectical materialism on the, they are not, they're, their engagements with the world are not done through the dialectical materialist uh, worldview. They're done through the purity fetish worldview or a bourgeois worldview, a non-dialectical worldview. What he mentioned about uh, enlightenment and 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 Marxism, I, I do think it's correct. We're also in an era, as uh, Lukacs used to say, uh, where you know it's become so hard to defend capitalist imperialism that the form that apologetics takes in its ideologues is indirect apologetics. The best ideologues of bourgeois thought today are the ones that critique it without getting at the substance and present themselves as a controlled form of counter hegemony. And in a large part, this uh, it, this takes the form of philosophical irrationalism. And in the face of philosophical irrationalism, you have to defend reason. And I, I do think that Marxism comes from that tradition of enlightenment that has a faith in reason, the old Soviet uh, Ministry of Education was called the Ministry of Enlightenment, right? It made me think of, um, you know, of, of, of the debates that uh, were going on at the the height of bourgeois philosophy when the bourgeois class was still somewhat revolutionary um, and, and youthful. So the defense of reason, I think, is very important. I just talked uh, uh, Thursday, last Thursday, with uh, John Bellamy Foster on his new article on, on the new irrationalism, where he takes this analysis from Lukács and sees how it manifests itself in the philosophical irrationalism of postmodernism, postmarxism, uh, object-oriented ontology, and all these different philosophers, Shishek, that are uh, very hip in the academy and that are portrayed as anti-capitalist or socialist or radical or, or whatever else. And they're not. They're the best defenders, the best radical recuperators, as, as Gabriel Rockhill calls them, of, uh, of and for the existing order.
Good. Let's call it quits. This was fun. <laughs> Write another book. We'll have you on again. I, I'm I'm really bad at, uh, at, at doing these promos because I end up going into conversations that have nothing to do with the book because I enjoy the conversation part of it so much. And I remember I did one for the uh, the anthology that we started talking about the book like an hour in. <laughs> the worst salesman when it comes to that. Oh, that's good sales. That's good. Sales. Well, we had that's we had a, a Robinson on, who's the current <laughs> affairs editor, on our last podcast, and we realized that he, we had a great conversation. We didn't we hardly didn't talk about his book at all. <laughs> anyway, well, listen, thanks so much, and let's keep in touch. Thank you guys for having me on. It's thanks, been a pleasure. Thanks, Carlos. Appreciate it. Great book. Thank you.